Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome, you're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. And we're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. In this edition, we're looking at how the media has covered the coronavirus, both here and in China. We ask, should we be fearful or has the media fed into our anxieties and caused undue worry. To navigate us through this, we are joined by two China correspondents and a journalist who's been reporting on coronavirus locally. Our first China correspondent is Bill Bertels. He's the ABC's China correspondent and he's been reporting from there since 2015. Our second is Kirsty Needham, who has been the Sydney Morning Herald on the Ages China correspondent and just returned back to Australia. And Rachel Clune, who is a health reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald. She's worked at the Brisbane Times. Rachel, welcome as well. At the end of December last year, while we were all worrying about the kilos that we'd stacked on over the Christmas period, China was quietly letting the World Health Organization know that it had a number of unusual pneumonia cases in the city of Wuhan. Seven short weeks later, 71,000 people worldwide are infected and over 1,700 have died. And from those raw numbers, it does sound like a worldwide emergency. But before we all race to our bunkers with our bottled water and cans of baked beans, can we just take a deep breath? Here on Fourth Estate, we're going to take a serious and sober look at the coronavirus, or to give it its real name, COVID-19. And in particular, we're going to ask, did the media do its job informing and not alarming? So let me just jump straight into it, guys. Thank you all for being here. And what we're going to be doing today is taking is to take a serious um, and sober look at coronavirus, or to give it its real name, COVID-19. And in particular, we're going to ask, did the media do its job in informing and not alarming? So, Bill, I'm going to start with you in Beijing. You were uniquely placed to watch this story roll out from China and indeed around the world. How did you become aware of coronavirus? And in those early days, what did you think of China's response to the virus? Well, actually, the first time I heard of this, I was on leave in Australia and I saw a tweet from one of these ropey looking anti-mainstream media Twitter handles that I'd never heard of with a video of uh, the, the uh, local authorities in Wuhan um, closing down that uh, animal and seafood market. And it sort of, the tweet said something like, uh, what the mainstream media is not telling you, uh, this mysterious new virus. And I, I, I sort of had a bit of a, a look at the time and it was very early January. I think it was maybe the second or third of January. And uh, at that stage, there was pretty limited information. It, it didn't sound that big a story at the time, so I wasn't too concerned about not being in China. Um, it, even when I went back 
Uh, as soon as I got back to China, we were basically on a plane to Taiwan to cover elections over there. So it just hadn't really developed into much of a story because what I was reading was all based off official reports, whether it was from um, the WHO or overseas sources, they were all quoting their facts and figures um, from what the Chinese side was telling them. And certainly in early to mid-January, it still sounded like it was pretty limited. It was uh, contained to only a handful of cases. And I suppose you have to rely heavily on the rumour mill here. Um, The rumour mill by mid-January wasn't really indicating that it was worse. It was only in sort of late January, probably around the 19th, 20th, that I had people up in Beijing saying to me that they were talking to people down in central China and they were hearing that this was quite a bit worse than what at the time was being reported. So can I just ask you there, when you went back to China after being in Taiwan, was it was it getting any play at all in the media? And was that enough to arouse your curiosity to say, hey, you know, this could be something I might go have a look? It was getting reported in the state media by then. We're talking around about the 12th of January. But it was, I mean, I first took a proper, I was monitoring this, but I wasn't really filing on it until about... I think it was around about the 17th, 18th, when a British study came out estimating that the number of infections was likely to be, uh, I think they said in about 500 or maybe they said 1500, I can't remember, but it was vastly more than the few dozen that were officially reported at the time. And they estimated that based on the infections in Thailand and Japan. They said, well, hang on, we've done a few calculations here. And if we, if we have three people infected who have travelled abroad, we estimate that um, the, the real figure must be, uh, I think it was in the hundreds at the time. Was that covered, Bill, in the local media? Um, I honestly, I cannot remember. I cannot, I don't think so. I don't think the state media was reporting the international study by the Brits. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't recall state media reports, but I weren't, I wasn't really actively looking for them. I do remember at the time state media was emphasising that human to human transmission was very unlikely. Kirsty, your take on the early days and how it was covered, particularly in the in the local Chinese media? Yeah, this is. I have an interesting perspective on this. I spent a lot of time in Hong Kong last year, and I was actually it first crossed my radar when I was getting these sporadic emails from the Hong Kong Health Department about um, hospital cases of people with pneumonia-like symptoms that had been to the Wuhan seafood market, but then then had been cleared. And this is December. I went back wow. to try and find that on the um, the Hong Kong Health Department website and I can't see them. So at least in Hong Kong, the health authorities knew something was up, whether they suspected it was a SARS-like thing or what was going. But obviously, doctors and health authorities were talking to each other. Now, what, I, what do you read? Can I just interrupt there? What do you read into the fact that it's kind of disappeared from the Hong Kong w- w- sites? Maybe I'm not looking in the right place okay. or, maybe or maybe there's a just... lot of sensitivity about mm. the timing of when this was officially alerted to the World Health Organization and Chinese state media um, put out the alert. Um, Moving from China to Australia um, between December and and January, I think it first hit my radar the day before school was due to come back in Australia and then we had some very big tabloid headlines in the Australian media about... um, China Kids Stay Home um, a few days before that outbreak was Mm. the front page of the Daily Telegraph and there were six dead in Wuhan at that time. So in that probably the mid to late January, uh, awareness was starting to be raised that there could be a problem. 
Yeah, and we'll talk about exactly what the problem was with the coverage of it, particularly in Australia in a while. But Rachel, can I come to you at this point and ask you, because you've written a number of stories on coronavirus mm. for the Sydney Morning Herald, um, your first date's back to the 19th of January. What was the, the, the take when the story first broke in Australia for you when it came across your radar? And do you think that the Australian media has done an okay job of covering this? I think to, to start with, health authorities in Australia were very cautious about declaring a, a major issue with the coronavirus. Um, and they were more cautious than some of the international counterparts. Like we, we were very, we were some, one of the last countries, I think, to have information at airports. There were reports of countries, um, you know, temperature testing people as they were coming in and out of Wuhan and landing in places like Rome or, yeah. or things like that. So I think um, in terms of the media response, I think media were quite critical of that of the health department's, um, I think, slowness to, to respond. I mean, my personal opinion is they were taking the advice of the World Health Organization, which was saying you don't need to stop people coming in and out of China, mm. you mm. don't need to temperature test them. And the evidence is that, you know, those temperature tests don't do a lot, especially when the virus has a 14-day incubation period. Mm. You know, you can fly from Wuhan, be temperature tested, have a completely normal temperature, arrive in Sydney and a few days and later infected, yeah. you have the virus. But, but so do you think, though, that from the very beginning of the reporting of the awareness of it, that there was a, a hyped-up alarmism happening around it? Absolutely. There were lots of headlines like deadly coronavirus mm. and... And, you know, I think there's a lot of breath, breathless reporting about the number of deaths as well, mm. you know, the, and comparing it to the previous SARS epidemic from, I think, 2003. So, mm. I mean, when you don't know a lot about the virus, and we didn't in those early days, they mm. didn't know how it was transmitted. They weren't sure if it was human-to-human -human transmission when I first started covering it. So I think that so best, left... best to report conservatively or with a degree of scepticism and doubt rather than to be as assertive as some of the headlines perhaps were at the time? Exactly. I mean, I, I took the approach of being more conservative, you know, saying we don't know these things yet, yeah. we don't know how serious it is, but I think a lot of other media outlets took that and ran with it hmm. in, in more of a fear campaign. So a question for you, Bill, and for you, Kirsty, for that matter. Um, what do you think that the Chinese government learnt uh, from the SARS outbreak of well, 10 years before, um, or more, 15 years before, uh, in, in relation to the way they handled coronavirus? Well, I think they learnt um, it was a disaster to cover it up. They didn't learn all the lessons, quite obviously, from the initial weeks of uh, what's happened this time. But it was it was seen as a as a, a something which can't be repeated in the same fashion. So this is why, compared to the SARS outbreak, uh, this time around, um, things have been vastly better. But of course, they haven't been perfect at all, as we know. I'd say because of what happened in SARS, there's a huge degree of scepticism even here on the ground towards official figures, towards uh, what authorities tell people. Um, I do think, however, that um, given how much smartphone and uh, social media has advanced since SARS, it would be much more difficult to have a cover-up on the scale of SARS these days. And this is why when... 
um, is quite interesting. In the initial weeks, you would hear on the WeChat rumour mill uh, from many different people up in Beijing, they would say, I hear it's much worse. I know people down in Hubei or people down in central China, in Changsha, and they say that they've heard that you know people have already turned up to hospitals in surrounding cities with cases. That, that I was hearing in January. But now, for example, you take somewhere like Beijing where they claim there's less than 400 cases. The thing is, if there were vastly more than 400 cases up in Beijing, the WeChat rumour mill would be going off. So, Bill, is that to say, because there's been a lot of Twitter chatter about the reliability of the figures that are coming out of Beijing. Do you trust those figures? No, I don't trust them, but I think they're a guide. I, I, I think they're, they're probably on the slightly low side because of the speed with which the virus increases. But I don't think, uh, if they say there's roughly 400 people in Beijing, maybe there's five or 600, maybe a bit more because of how fast it spreads. But I really doubt there are thousands and thousands more because I believe people here in Beijing would be getting word of that in one way or another through WeChat. Okay. Kirsty, what do you think? I think one major difference with SARS is we're seeing um, here that the central government seems to be on board with the need for transparency and they learnt the lesson that unless you let people know what's going on, you're going to worsen the spread of this virus. But we've, we see a flaw now in the Chinese system that while the central government might be on board with communicating with the World Health Organisation and sharing that information, the local government wasn't. And, um, and Bill mentioned mobile phones, smartphones, social, social media. That's a really big factor this time. Um, one of the early whistleblowers, one of the frontline doctors in Wuhan, mm. uh, Li, Li uh, Wenliang, who um, you know tragically died. He, this is this is a real problem the central government are facing. So it does seem now, and we've seen the Hubei Party Committee, the Communist Party Committee Secretary, those top officials have been sacked by the central government. The central government's trying to scapegoat because it really does seem there was a cover-up at the local level that one of the doctors who saw that something was up in the hospital and tried to talk to um, medical students and other people about this was, was punished by the police. Mm. He was. Um, we first heard about these eight people on social media who'd been um, spreading rumours and it turns out that they were doctors. Mm. And for him then to die uh, a few weeks ago, that became a huge event on Chinese social media and people vented their anger at the persistence of this kind of um, censorship um, that a policing action would be looked at first rather than health concerns. So, so, so in a sense, is all the good that, the, that Beijing uh, generated for itself by being open and transparent in the beginning kind of been, you know, washed out, washed away by that particular episode That's and right. the death of that doctor. And, and it points to the weakness that when you have a sort of a strongman government, a top-down system where local – China's a very big place – a lot of provinces and you have local party officials trying to bring good news and sort of appease Beijing yeah. and they put that above trying to deal with the crisis in their in their own area that's a real weakness in the system. So do you think eventually and this is a question for both you Kirsty and for you Bill that the Chinese government perhaps fighting its better instinct in trying to be open uh, may have some regrets? Um, yes I would say they they definitely will um, particularly at the top level because one of the most interesting things that emerged in recent days um, is that even though people aren't openly free to criticise Xi Jinping, there is a lot of chatter here about how he hasn't really been the face of the response uh, up until um, uh, about a week or so ago. He wasn't really seen that much publicly addressing this whole thing, even though the, the news reports each day uh, that his government puts out claim that he was um, behind the response, he was directing it all. Anyway, and so they come out and they basically say, well, actually, back on January the 7th, 
Xi Jinping chaired a, a high-level meeting uh, directing a response. So this was an attempt to say, look, from the get-go, he's been, uh, he's been behind the uh, response to this outbreak. But of course, it raised further questions. If it's got to the level where the Chinese president is directing a closed-door meeting on January the 7th, if, if it's that severe, why wouldn't they publicise this meeting on January the 7th? They publicised a lot of his other activities that day, but the state media omitted any mention at the time that the virus was of su sufficient concern to, uh, to get his interest. So even at the top level, the, the secrecy, I suppose, the um, emphasis on stability and not having people panic at the time was still greater than what you would have thought would be a normal priority to let everybody know, hey, the president himself, the chairman, he's, 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 uh, he's very concerned about this. And Rachel, is that what you were picking up here when you're looking at this issue, covering it from an Australian perspective, that there was an element of, of, of secrecy and fear about transparency that could trump any public health concerns? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, China was initially lauded for releasing the genome sequence of the virus pretty quickly um, and they were praised for being very open. But it since emerged that they actually had that sequence a week before they before they released it, mm -hmm. I, I believe. So, and and with the numbers and the number of deaths, I mean, it, it's been hard for people then to calculate how serious this virus is mm -hmm. without an accurate number of cases versus the number of deaths. Mm -hmm. That makes things tricky for for um, epidemiologists to to work out quite how bad it is. So, mm. yeah, it, it has been a bit of a concern from mm. a health perspective. And is, it, is, it, is that difficult for you to navigate as a reporter? It it is, you know, not being based in in China and having that. China experience. There's a lot of rumour and lots of videos on social media. I mean, there was a paper uh, published recently that said that the virus was linked to snakes and that was quickly debunked. But, you know, th these things spread faster as, mm. as rumours than the truth does. So, you know, it, it's been very hard sometimes to sift through a lot of that rumour and find the truth in it. Okay, so the, before we, you know, deep dive into media coverage, I just want to talk about an issue that you mentioned, Bill, a little earlier, and that is people, the trust of people in China with the information that they're receiving. Kirsty, having just spent quite a long time there, uh, I imagine that the level of public trust in public information is is probably reasonably low across the board at the best of times? Um, yes, I think so. That's true. And people do rely a lot on social media and, and what they hear amongst their friendship networks. I mean, that there's a downside with that. There's heavy censorship of even those person-to-person -person messages mm -hmm. that can be sent. But mm -hmm. there's huge distrust um, in public information, and particularly around something like this after SARS, where they know that they were lied to. Mm -hmm. And do you, do, you think, uh, do you think that in relation to coronavirus that that is now at a point where it could actually be quite dangerous for the government. Um, and I think the government can see this and is trying to address it. And I think perhaps that's why we've belatedly seen this information about Xi um, chairing the meeting mm. and coming to the fore, starting to come through. We've also seen in propaganda messaging in the last week an attempt to blame um, the US um, to refocus attention on Western countries like the US and Australia closing their borders to Chinese people and to try and whip up um, nationalism, which is something that the Communist Party will often revert to, to try and you know bring the population 
population back on side. Um, you know, looking looking at nationalism. Is that what you think that was about then? The, the with the with the Chinese ambassador in Canberra imploring the Australian government to lift its embargo on flights into Australia. Absolutely, because yeah. we saw similar messages from other ambassadors around the world, and also coming from the Chinese Foreign Ministry. So you don't think then that the uh, continued embargo is a is a an overreaction of sorts? Well, other countries are doing it. I mean, I think um, Christmas Island might be an overreaction, um, sending people yeah. thousands of kilometres um, offshore. Um, and perhaps there are other ways to get the, the 100,000 students back, maybe self-quarantining, um, mm-hmm. but to have some kind of restrictions on people coming into the country, we are seeing other countries doing that. Mm. Okay, let's bore down into media coverage. And the job that journalists have, obviously, is to inform in situations like this, but that's not to say that there aren't competing interests, like people clicking on stories uh, for business purposes, which is um, you know valid on one hand and problematic on another. Uh, stories on the coronavirus are going to get lots of clicks, lots of eyeballs, lots of ears. The temptation is to produce lots and lots of these stories ongoing. At what point does the media go from informing the public to feeding into the general anxiety that we have about an issue like this and the the sheer scale of it? Rachel? That's a really interesting question. And it's made trickier by the fact that obviously, as we've learnt more about the virus, uh, advice has changed. So, um, initially, there were, there were no fears of human-to-human contact, so they weren't worried about people coming back from China. And then they were like, oh, no, it does, you know, transmit yep. from people to people. Yep. And, you know, they weren't sure about how cont- contagious it was. And just those words, you know, we're not sure how contagious it is, can, can be quite fear-inducing, I mm-hmm. think. So mm-hmm. that that's quite difficult to manage. The other thing is that um, because it's such a big story, there are lots of reporters who've been pulled onto this story for a day from their usual job as a court reporter, as a general reporter. And I think I've noticed that in media conferences, you know, people asking some very strange questions like, can you get coronavirus from a parcel from China? Or they, so they're they, looking for angles, is that what you're saying? They're looking for angles and to keep the story fresh because obviously it's gone on for quite some time now. Yeah. So they're like, right, what's the next angle? We can't just report yeah. there's been... 20 more deaths yeah, or, yeah. or so something what, like that. What, what, what do you say in that situation where you're in a, you know, an editorial meeting and something like that comes up? That's another good question. I mean, my, my bosses are quite good in that they trust me to come up with the, you know, the, the correct types of angles and I haven't been asked to chase anything ridiculous, ridiculous um, which, which is good. And, and there has been enough updates, I think, to mm. kind of keep the story fresh without going for those bizarre headlines like you can't get you know, unions call for lockdown on parcels being sent from China over fears of coronavirus, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So so then, Kirsty, can I ask you, at what point do we say the wall-to-wall coverage from, you know, every media organisation is helping build a sense of hysteria, even if one media organisation, say Fairfax, for example, when seen in isolation, is not going over the top? I think this is one of the biggest stories in the world right now. So it's not just Australian media that are giving it blanket coverage, but it's it's a temptation, isn't it? I mean, contagious, a virus, mystery, it taps into some really primal fears amongst mm. your readers and the Certainly general does. public. And what I think what's been impressive is during the um, the chief medical officer's um, press conferences, he has been pushing out the message um, about don't abandon Chinatown, don't stop going to restaurants. Um, they've yeah. been expressing, they've been doing this job of trying to dampen down the fear that is being whipped up um, and looking at some of the collateral damage in, in our um, in our community where we have a really high, I think one million Australians of Chinese descent. We're a multicultural society, one in four Australians has someone born overseas. So 
that's um, that's an important uh, so, so the xenophobia that, that that part of it is is something that I do want to talk about in depth but when you look at the figures there are 15 Australians I think who are infected with this virus is that still the case 15 uh, f- 15 have been yes have been. Um, and how many have recovered of those uh, I believe at least eight and our population is. Oh, not millions, 25 million. 25 million people. So what are we saying here? What is the media trying to tell us? The other interesting thing is that, you know, it hasn't spread within Australia. So people have come here from China and got sick in China, arrived here, have been treated and have gone home Mm. and haven't spread it to anyone else. So Mm. I think it's an interesting thing that there's still a lot of interest in it despite the fact that it's been very well contained mm. so far in Australia. Yeah. So, okay, d- does that, is that talking, is that speaking to something else that is going on here around it to do with the anxiety around coronavirus in this country? Bill, can I ask you, is it amplified, do you think, from your observations over there, looking back home, is it amplified by our generalised anxiety about China and their perceived influence here, particularly on our economy? Maybe a little bit, but uh, people over here on the ground are absolutely uh, paranoid and anxious throughout the whole country. Um, If you saw the level of anxiety uh, just in Beijing, a city that is far from the epicentre, walked into a supermarket yesterday and they're demanding to spray um, sanitizer on your hands just before you walk in and start shopping. It, It sort of doesn't seem to me... Um, particularly unreasonable that people are uh, anxious in Australia as they're anxious all throughout the region, Japan as well, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. But um, in all, particularly Hong Kong, I think there's a lot of uh, resentment towards the mainland and this sort of plays into a whole bunch of different issues there. In Australia, yeah, there's probably a little bit of that element. Uh, Certainly the reaction of uh, some people seems to be uh, particular, or some media, but also just some people that I talk to, they seem to say stuff like, oh, I'm not going anywhere near Chinatown, and you think, for God's sake. Um, so, yeah, there's probably a little bit of that element in the Australian reaction, but as I say, on the ground, everybody across China is awfully worried about this, so it doesn't seem that out of proportion to me. Kirsty, what do you think? Um, look, that raises an interesting point. I reckon a lot of uh, Chinese Australians are getting their news from China, from, from their friends in China, from Weixin, Weibo. So that's that, that anxiety that Bill's describing, I think that's where it's coming in, not from reading um, the English language newspapers that, that we work for um, here in Sydney. So it's quite understandable. Oh, so you think, that, yeah. you think it's being fed from China itself? Yeah, from, you know, people from of Chinese media. descent, um, you know, reading their friends, panicking, reading about their relatives being locked down in various cities. And with the Chinatown issue, I'm speaking to some Chinese Australians. It's Chinese Australians that are staying out of Chinatown too. So I think it, it stems back from just this panic and the memories of SARS and distrust of information. So it may not necessarily be mainstream media messaging that's causing this. Mm, okay. Yeah, if I could add something, New South Wales Health has done quite a lot of work, interestingly, to speak to the Chinese community in in Sydney and and in Australia. I think a lot of the rumours on social media have been Chinese language rumours and, as you said, you know, that stay away from Chinatown has spread a lot within the community and they've worked really hard to try and dispel a lot of those myths, you know, getting the Chinese Doctors Association to, to talk to their community and the local media. But even... Just um, Anglo-Australians, I've, not, I've had people approach me saying, oh, this person, you know, she was a UNSW student. Should I stay away from UNSW? Am I at risk if I go to right. O-Week? So I think a lot of that fear is just from the community in general mm. and mm. some media outlets must might be 
be playing to that fear, but it's been quite hard to to try and keep that at a, at a minimum. Yeah, and so how do you keep it at a minimum? I mean, it, clearly it's a story. If you have that level of anxiety emanating from China and infiltrating, you know, people who actually live here in communities and word spreads really, really fast, I mean, that is a story, right? That, that's a news story. That's a media story. How do you, where do you draw the, the, the barriers? How do you contain it so that it's not, it doesn't become hysterical? I think from just from my personal experience as a, a family coming back from China, we were these people from China. My kid was a kid from China. Yeah, that what was, happened there? Well, the you know a, the day before school um, was due to start, uh, we got a note. I think at four o'clock that afternoon, yeah. the health department decided that China kids can't come to school. Like you, um, if if you have to do fourteen day quarantine before you come in, we'd been home for eight weeks, but we got a letter from school saying if you've been in China in the last two months, you can't come to school without a medical clearance. So it's there is a fear out there. Um, I think for me, and, what and would have helped what... would be accurate information. So what would have helped in our situation if there had been an emphasis in the media reporting on that fourteen day quarantine period, mm. then people like our family who'd been back for eight weeks who wouldn't have been subject to these kinds of restrictions. And I think um, my husband. Um, was on a tram in Sydney and um, we, it broke down as Sydney trams seem yes. to do and it was a hot day it was very crowded there was a lot of um, Chinese Australians and you know he saw some Anglo-Australians yelling out nasty things about the coronavirus so mm. it's lack of information it's just not I think if, if the media can be more specific about the details of this disease how it spread um, some more medical information um, that would help cut do, do, do you think Kirsty that some parts of the media have picked up though on that xenophobia and amplified it I think it was interesting to see a backlash, I believe. So one, um, the Daily Telegraph and Herald Sun quite early on had some headlines. And I think from what I understand, they, they copped letters to the editor. So their readers um, mm. sort of called it out. And I think there has been a shift in the way that that's been reported. There's more a focus now on the Australians stuck on the Diamond Princess and, and looking at other stories like the economic impact and the impact to the universities. Mm, mm. Um, Bill, can I bring you in here? Uh, social media aside, do you think that the Chinese media has done um, a good job of not feeding into a general anxiety or do you think that that is there and perhaps even justifiably so? Well, given how huge the level of anxiety is around China for this virus, no, <laughs> it's far, it's far worse situation here than anywhere else. The entire country, um, the people are, are petrified. Part of that, though, has come from not the Chinese state media, but the government policy. Take Beijing, for example. As I've said, nowhere near the epicentre. New rule comes in a few days ago. You fly into Beijing from anywhere, including overseas, and you have to stay at home and self-quarantine for 14 days, actually similar to what's happening in Australia. So, Kirsty, what do you think? Yeah, what's happening in China is fascinating. Um, we, from the outside, we see China as this monolithic top-down place, but in fact there are you know, provincial governments, there's local leaders, and what we've seen the last few weeks is at a, even at a village level, people are trying to stop outsiders from coming in. There's been reports of villages digging up their roads so that outsiders can't come in. Multiple cities, including big ones like Beijing and Shanghai, are requiring anyone coming in from overseas to self-quarantine. There's, there's footage of Shanghai... Um, stopping cars coming in, um, people from other provinces coming in unless they have a legitimate job or a reason to be there. And people in Shanghai are saying even at a neighbourhood level in their compound, outsiders aren't allowed in. So you can't have the house cleaner or a visitor. You can't have a friend's um, a friend's 
over for dinner. So we're seeing it's not just um, Australia and Western companies, Western countries that are shutting the gate and um, closing the door. It's happening right across China too. So I, I wonder if there's a really primal instinct here, a fear of contagion um, mm. that mm. we're seeing happen. But that would seem to indicate that it's perhaps it's not fault of the Chinese media. Perhaps it's not the Chinese media that's either feeding the anxiety or trying to dampen it down, that there is something that's more primal about this that that we're not taking into account. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think also in China you have the other factor that's belatedly happened, that the communist system goes right down to the neighbourhood level. So um, communist party um, organisations are being triggered at that neighbourhood level to surveil, to track and to monitor the people under their control. So there's another factor there. Fine. So can I wind up by asking you both the lessons uh, for our respective local media? Kirsty, I'll get you to address the Chinese media in in this case. But Rachel, the lessons for local media here in Australia when the next viral outbreak inevitably occurs? I think listening to the experts is is really key here. I mean, the chief medical officer, his deputy, the, the state health officers have been really great, I think, in hosing down a lot of that fear, saying yeah. you should go to Chinatown. You know, I think uh, Dr. Kerry Chant, who's the chief health officer in New South Wales, said, I'd go to Chinatown with my children, no problems. You know, so they've been very measured. They've been very informative and... They've led my reporting because they're the people who know best Mm -hmm. in terms of how to deal with these kinds of outbreaks. Kirsty, what do you think the lessons are, say, for the Chinese media? We've seen some really courageous reporting coming out of Chinese media. So Saishin, a business investigation um, unit in particular, um, Beijing News, um, a lot of journalists that are usually subject and toe the line on censorship have found their voice and they've been fearlessly reporting on what's happening in their country. They're putting the national interest first. There's less of that now. I hope that when all of this clears up, when the epidemic is over, that we don't see repercussions against those journalists. And I hope that this um, brief moment of not freedom of the press, but of journalists really pushing against those boundaries could lead to more of this kind of journalism within China. I thank you all for being here. Uh, It's been a great discussion and I look forward to speaking to you again soon sometime. Thanks, Monica. Thank you. Well, on that note, thanks to my panel for a great discussion, Bill Bertles, the ABC's China correspondent, Kirsty Needham, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age's former China correspondent, and Rachel Clune, health reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald. Thank you all. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, and we thank them for their continued support. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. And thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockwell. My name's Monica Attard. Thank you for listening. <laughs>